In this episode, we discuss 1974 Black Christmas, a story of a sorority house victimized by prank phone calls and murder, the creation of Bob Clark. We also discuss whether Bob Clark is indeed responsible for his new innovative camera techniques. Is anyone responsible? Does anyone have true ownership for their own ideas? It's Christmas time. Come and walk with us and enjoy. Brian, hi. What a, what a lovely day today. Yeah, I feel like today is a, a special day, John. Not just an or- ordinary hike. It's a special day for for those that observe certain special days. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. Uh, it's Christmas. So that, yeah. <laughs> it's Christmas so that air that you might be sensing that's in the air is maybe not sensitive to you because maybe you're a non-believer, Brian. Well, I know belief gives you the ability to sense special air in the air. Mm -hmm. So it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's Christmas Day. I sense that Jesus was born this day. Is that correct? (laughs) You're sensing that in the air. (laughs) (laughs) That's in the air. Yeah. I look in the clouds and I see what looks like a a baby Jesus cloud structure. So cumulus, I'm not sure. uh, Cumulonimbus, I think uh, it would have to be at least. (laughs) That's wild. Well, uh, Merry Christmas. And uh, I hope these visions are are, uh, pleasant for you. Yeah. No, they they are. But we always like to do a Christmas-themed episode, don't we, John? We are big fans of not Christmas, but Christmas-themed episodes. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's what we're about today, listeners. We watched Black Christmas from 1974. Yeah, 1974, Black Christmas. Which, in my mind, didn't have a ton of relevance to Christmas itself. There's a holiday party, which frames the whole thing, but otherwise mm-hmm. no real no real connections to this holiday. Right. The motivations of characters and plotline happen to fall uh, on Christmas Day, but or mm-hmm. near Christmas, I guess. But uh, other than that, there's not much thematic Christmas content. This, there's some you know, carolers. There's some carolers. Ultimately, I'll just do a quick summary. Hmm. There's a sorority house. A guy creeps into the sorority house attic, stays up there, terrorizes these women right after they have gone on winter break. And so their winter break is being terrorized by a creeper. And uh, that's the movie. Unless and, yeah. is, is that kind of pretty much it? Well, he makes phone calls from, he spends most of the movie in the attic and makes phone calls within the house and is able to project his voice as man, as woman, as child. Um, very, very large range of voices and moods and um his rantings don't really make much sense but the phone calls are a big part of the movie he kind of has prank phone calls or perverted phone calls in which he says crass and sexual things and yeah his voice oscillates between an adult to a childlike to a woman i guess there's a a suggestion that he's uh, has a presentation of multiple personalities and that's what's being conveyed through these phone calls yeah, he refers to himself as Billy, I think. And then oh, you're he, right. Yeah, Billy. And there's a there's another person named Agnes. He seems to be Billy, and Agnes seems to be his co-conspirator um, hmm. in these in these murders. I always get curious and around uh, creating fan fiction related to plot structures that aren't actually in the movie. So, do you think that we could take some time later this afternoon and, and put together a little backstory on Billy and Agnes? 
Yeah, that seems like a fun Christmas afternoon ho- event. Yeah, that, that'll be a gift to each other. Yeah, our fan fiction about Billy and Agnes. These sorority sisters, they're 1970s, um, heavy drinkers, mm-hmm. very uh, open about sex. And mm-hmm. um, there's a scene where they shame one of their more prudish members who they accuse of being a virgin. She's actually the first victim. Kind of a lot of, a lot of not bullying, I would say, but jocularity among the sorority sisters. They're all very, very strong personalities. Maybe somewhat reflective of what a sorority might be like. You know, it's holiday time during your university experience and it's time to drink, have a good time, you know, talk about sex. Yeah. The creeper lulls them into the attic uh two two of them and then and then yes they sort of slowly get taken out one by one and meanwhile the main character i guess is jess and she's got a creepy boyfriend named peter she's pregnant by the way jess is doesn't want the baby Mm -mm. and her boyfriend very much wants the baby he does and he's very heavy-handed about his wishes and so the the detectives that are trying to find this prank caller and also the they don't really know there's a murder they're chasing the prank caller they don't really know that there's been murders there's sorority sisters that have gone missing one one at least Mm -hmm. it's more a missing person's hunt nobody's aware of the of the killing it's essentially like a little murder mystery one sorority girl goes missing that brings her dad to the house the sorority house then an investigation opens and then midway through the movie they think that Peter, the vengeful boyfriend, as the police see it, to punish these sorority girls because Jess wants to get an abortion, then comes into the into the house and, and gets murdered by one of the sorority girls, and then the, the case is shut. Because while well, they found the guy, this is this is the guy who has the motivation, this is the guy that did all this terrorizing and 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 then later we find out that, well, spoilers, it wasn't uh Peter. I would call his motivational state. He's not really angry. He's more like, how would you describe Peter's emotional state? He is under a lot of pressure. He's a concert pianist. Mm -hmm. And he had a big performance on his horizon, which didn't go very well. I think because he was distracted by the fact that his girlfriend wanted an abortion. So his his, um, music recital didn't go well. And that made an avalanche of his whole plans to stay a concert pianist. He, this, this was the straw that broke the camel's back and uh, he's going to step away from that career and do something else. Right. Not so much that part, but he's upset that she's getting an abortion. I'm trying to step into that experience and wonder what his, his emotional state is under those conditions. Is he vengeful? Is he, angry is he feeling like he's being taking advantage of does you know what what is under that context of girlfriend getting an abortion how would you describe that emotional state he's experiencing i think he wants to have a closer relationship with jess and get married and this kid would be a way to obviously cement that and so her Mm. her rejection of the baby is also a rejection of him and his desire to get married I see. Yeah. So it's like a, the stepping on a potential future that he has imagined under these conditions 
and then a different choice structure of the girlfriend coming forward then upends his entire prediction of how his life will go. And so there's a maybe yeah. a frustrative sort of state there. Yeah. Uh, and disappointment and um, sadness. Fear of rejection. Fear of rejection. Well, yeah. yeah. Although he's he's a good looking guy. I'm sure he could stay on the market. Yeah. And he's a big pianist. Yeah. He really knows how to tickle the ivory and um, he's got a nice jawline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Turtlenecks. He wears turtlenecks. That's true. Did you notice the, the boyfriend of the missing sorority girl wears mm-hmm. a gigantic fur coat the entire movie (laughs) (laughs) and i was thinking like was that normal was that it must have been normal because they just put him in there was he trying was was that a representation of his wealth or his his prestige or is that kind of common that guys would wear these huge chewbacca like um uh, you know (laughs) fur coats everywhere no one seemed to see it was weird the whole i don't know when starsky and hutch was around but i do you know that tv show yeah I think that that was sort of a style, you know, that big uh, fur-lined, beige-colored coat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was just one of the styles for men back then. That or turtlenecks, you have to pick one. Mm. Okay. There's also the, I just wanted to mention the, they called her the house mother. I don't know if this is a role that sororities have, but Mrs. Mack, who is kind of a comedic character, she stashes bottles of alcohol all around the house and sneaks drinks here and there and... The girls love her, and she seems to like all the girls, but she's just sort of comic relief, I thought. But yeah, she's she's involved uh, in the in the plot as well. She's the second victim up in the attic. Yeah, and, and in in summary, here I would say that some movies I watch and the characters are there to be killed, and <laughs> you know, like their 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 entire existence is just someone else to be murdered. Right. And I appreciated that in this movie. You know, they didn't go into tremendous detail as far as the different characters, but each character had their own little life. They had their own little coloring. They had their own little personality. And so I didn't get sucked into this movie. I mean, it's 74. It's an old movie. And it's, you know, the plot line isn't exactly exotic, but it it entertained me in in certain ways just because it, I think, gave some level of respect to the different character lines in what otherwise would be thought of as a kind of throwaway B horror movie. I don't know if if you share that experience or not. I do. Yeah, I, I agree that um, all the characters were strong uh, personalities and definable, and yeah, not any obvious sort of a uh, monster bait. Monster <laughs> bait. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, having said that, let's kind of see where this fits into the uh, the time period. So, Texas Chainsaw came out in 1974, mm-hmm. the exact same year as this movie. Oh my God. Remember that That's movie? The original one? That, that was the, mo- the original. T- this, it's not a coincidence that we're watching Black Christmas. Well, on mm-hmm. Christmas, but also in in this sort of sequence. So you we have you the, pl- you planned all this uh, a little bit, yeah. And so we we saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre in '74. That fits on the same year. And then last Last House on the Left, we saw that you know kind of recently. That's '72. So this is in the same sort of I don't know release schedule or cluster of releases. I don't know if there's any similarity here or any cultural influences or uh, thematic things going on between these releases or not. Can we tie them together with that last girl motif? Ah, the the last girl motif. Let's think. Um, and there's also the uh, idea of society coming out and getting you. So this external threat, someone literally living in your attic that you don't know of, who, you know, snuck in and is terrorizing 
uh, even maybe even with the phone call piece, it's by it being an, uh, coming in through the phone, it's like, okay, well, this is creepy, but it's far away. It's just a little tunnel that I'm having this experience through. And I feel safe because it's a virtual experience person isn't currently here, but he's actually in the attic. What in was external of- is now internal and threatening you. There's no um, indication given of what the creepers, who he is or what his motivations are. I think he's just absolutely insane, but he's not the aggressive boyfriend. He's not, it doesn't have any relationships with these girls. As far as I could tell, he just shows up at their house when they're having this party and climbs up the trellis on the outside of the house and spends the rest of the movie in the attic. So sort of a random threat, I guess is my point. It's not, Mm, I see what you're saying. In in Texas Chainsaw, there's the cannibalistic role that these victims fulfill. Mm-hmm. And uh, Last House on the Left, at least with the, the characters were developed as psychopaths and antisocials and so on. But with this movie, there's no there's no definition of that external threat, uh, their motives, I mean. It's just a random feature that is somehow occupied your attic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So just kind of trying to place this where it needs to fit. Some little things about the the actors and the the producers or directors in this movie. So this director, Bob Clark, he directed A Christmas Story. I don't know if you've seen that. I haven't. What's that about? That's the movie where the kid gets his little air rifle and shoots his eye out, plays on Christmas, like, I don't know, every year. You're, okay. you're probably watching Home Alone during this period of time, but <laughs> you know you, have, you know what I'm talking about. You'll shoot I, your eye out, and then it's like the kid Mikey, I think his name is, or something, sticks his tongue to a pole and it gets frozen there. You tell me you haven't seen this. I haven't seen it, but I I, I think I know the 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 commercials that advertise for it. Okay, fair enough. So yeah, so same director. He's obviously a a, a Christmas fanatic. Loves the holidays. Makes movies about it. <laughs> think, think about what he sees in the clouds. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, just a little little side note there. And then Margaret Kidder, uh, she was the love interest in Superman, the first Superman. Yeah, I re- she's yeah. Very, all the women in this movie, well, two of them at least, were famously beautiful actresses. Yeah, so um, she was in Superman. She was also, I think she was in Ambuville Horror, which we haven't seen yet. Um, I'm trying to think if she, she was in any other movies that we've seen um, but part of the reason we're bringing it up is that I was kind of looking at a little bit of her biography and she actually killed herself. Um, mm. yeah, uh, took an overdose of, uh, medication and pills, kind of, a an unusual character. She was saying to her neighbors, I guess she moved out to Wyoming or something. And she said to her, she, she was a, a big fan of the wolves, literal wolves that were in the, um, the mountains around her home. And so she would leave meats out for the wolves. And the quote that I kind of read said to her neighbor that if her neighbor came knocking and found her unresponsive, essentially dead, that he should drag her out by her by the, the bed sheets <laughs> and leave her out there naked to be eaten by the wolves. Well, we've but, made that arrangement amongst ourselves already, <laughs> just with sleeping bags. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I preferred uh, a longer sort of uh, demise in only being consumed by squirrel. But <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I want to savor that experience. Um, in relation to Black Christmas, there's an abortion. Well, mm-hmm. again, reading this biography, Margaret Kidder had talked about how she um, had to get an abortion when she was younger in, I guess, her college years or, or near that. And her boyfriend took her to a hotel 
to execute this abortion, uh, she was filled with Lysol. And mm. I guess the Lysol then uh, instigated the abortion. But, you know, the parallel here to the movie, I'm not suggesting that there's any reference to it, but just an interesting sort of social dynamic there. Us living in, in the times in which abortion is, uh, well, I guess was quite accessible and available and I can't imagine that experience that she had or a uh, potential experience of a, another person who might not have access to abortion, not to make this political. I mean, that's not my agenda here. I'm just more saying that, like, in reading that, I was like, oh, my gosh, like this famous person, although maybe pre-famous, but had to get an abortion in a hotel room and the, and the execution of it was Lysol. And I was like, gosh, mm-hmm. what an experience, you know, what a terrible experience. Um, so these are, just- these, are, these are things that are, I'm not exposed to based on the generation in which I've been born and operate within. Yeah. I just, uh, we just had a patch of cell reception and I Googled, uh, Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973, which would land it obviously right amongst the making of this movie. Hmm. I don't, I don't, I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a pretty big plank of the movie, Jess's decision to not have the child and, and, um, and her boyfriend's anger at that and attempts to force his will upon her. So yeah, that's certainly possible that, um, and then ultimately she just mistakenly, she kills Peter thinking that he was the one who made the calls and, and so on. But it, it turns out that he wasn't, I guess the movie closes with everyone concluding that Peter was the killer, but in fact, he's not last reference. Okay. John Saxon. Mm. He was the police officer in this movie. Wait, he, he was also in Friday the 13th, Freddy Krueger? That's right. He was in Nightmare on Elm Street. You're getting, you're, you're getting close here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, he was the dad <laughs> who also was a police officer in yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's got the police officer look. Yeah, he really does. He's, he's, a, he's both like an attractive but also slightly intimidating kind of looking guy, you know? Like mm-hmm. he, I could see him tell a joke and smile and then say something sinister and stab me in the side, you know? Yeah. He could do both. <laughs> Which is good, you know, good. for a good police officer, you got to have those qualities. <laughs> uh, it's what they look for at the academy. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. A lot of, um, a lot of good actors, I thought. And, and Jess is played by Olivia Hussey. I remember um, we watched uh, Romeo and Juliet in high school. Did you watch that movie? No. You mean the she, one with uh, the remake with Claire Danes and uh, <laughs> no, I mean the, Leonardo DiCaprio? The, the 1968 one with, with Olivia Hussey. Oh, no, I have Which, not seen that one. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, that's what she's, that was her first big breakthrough. But um, mm. yeah. So wow, you of, recognize her from that movie? That's cool. I didn't actually, but I, <laughs> I uh, <laughs> when, when I watched this movie on... Amazon and I clicked on the, the the stars, you know, to show their profiles that it showed her picture from, from Romeo and Juliet. And I remembered that because there was, yes, there's, she's, she's very beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. The women in this movie are quite beautiful. So I had one idea here that I wanted to talk to you about, Brian, okay. and uh, it's a little loosely defined as, as mine tend to be, but uh, let me introduce it with a little bit of structure here. Okay. So uh, the director here, Bob Clark, who also did uh, Christmas story. That's right. He did Christmas Story. Yeah. Um, he's credited within the movie Black Christmas for coming up with this subjective kind of viewpoint of the killer. So, the, you know, the movie is shot as such that mm-hmm. you see the perspective of the killer in this subjective frame and he's crawling up the lattice to get into the attic. And when he's stalking 
uh, the, the women, you can see his little hands as if it's you first person sort of experience. And he's kind of uh, tagged as the owner of this concept, the originator of such a concept, or at least using it in a way that was uh, unparalleled at that point in time. And part of the reason why I chose this movie, one, because it's, you know, it's Christmas day today, Brian, and I want to share that day only with you, but also because Friday the 13th is the next series that we're kind of going to look a little closer at. And there's a lot of first person perspective shots attributed to that movie. So is that Freddy um, Krueger? Uh, no, that Freddy Krueger was Nightmare on Elm Street, which we've okay. already done. This mm-hmm. is uh, Jason Voorhees. So yeah, we're okay. building a vocabulary and experience set to draw from. But so Bob Clark is associated with this. He owns it. It sounds like as part of his invention. And then he also talks about how that he was asked if he would make a sequel to Black Christmas. And he said he wouldn't. Mm. But if he was to make one, this is what it would be about. The killer, you know, Billy, is captured. He's institutionalized. Later, comes out of the institution and happens to come out of the institution on Halloween mm. and is in this first-person perspective going back to the sortie house and terrorizing those women. So well, it's, it's still, still holiday-themed, but different holiday. Right. Still holiday-themed, different holiday, but... There's a movie called Halloween mm. done by John Carpenter, which is almost this exact plot line. Person is institutionalized, comes out. It's a lot of first person perspective of stalking women. Um, so Bob is sort of making a suggestion that he had this dialogue with someone and they stole this idea. And this is how Halloween was created. And he's like the grandfather of this concept. Anyways, the point of putting all this out there is that there's this ownership of idea, which I find a little strange or at least a little arrogant. So before Black Christmas, there was Psycho. In Psycho, there's a scene where there's a first person sort of subjective experience of the, of the killer coming in and stabbing the lady in the shower. So the idea that this is purely a Bob Clark idea is not true. And sort of the idea that could I close my eyes and imagine a subjective or empathic experience of just being able to see something from someone other's perspective. So even the concept of just a, a sort of human capacity can be attributed to one person or someone takes ownership of that as if they've invented this idea. It, it seems a little strange to me. That's kind of my, my, my point here. And maybe something sister to that or near that is I think beauty kind of fits within this framework as well, but not quite precisely where it's, I'm a very attractive person. I get a you lot of yeah, I get a lot of attention from others yeah, because I'm attractive. Right. And then I attribute this to me. But it's not me. It's a body that I inherited, that I am occupying, and I have maybe the the current beauty standards that are seen to be attractive, and I carry those on my person. So I then say, Oh, this is me. I'm an attractive person. I'm in, I'm important. I'm uh I'm this great individual, yet I didn't do any of this crap. I just happened to be born and inherited these qualities, which at the moment happen to be a reflection of what society thinks are attractive. And so again, sort of this misattribution of quality to self and ownership of these things in which, how much can I really own this? How much can I really say this is of my doing or even of me? And so, yeah, so those two things came to mind in, in kind of digesting this movie is Bob Clark claiming these as his own idea when they're essentially just the mechanics of humanity being able to subjectively see things from other people's perspectives 
and he puts him in the movie and all of a sudden he thinks he's the cat's pajamas. That attribution <laughs> of ownership to that is it's a little odd. I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I think with, with the case of Bob Clark, he's got a, he's got a movie that he made and he used that particular camera technique. So he's got a, he's got a artistic product, which is, he's got a documentation. He's got a document, so to speak. And, and that document can be dated. And presumably you can look at all movies that preceded that document and not see that camera technique. Therefore, I think he's got a little more of a claim. Uh, mm -hmm. He's got a little more justification for that claim than might otherwise. He might not have had the idea before everyone else had it, but he implemented it, uh, assuming that this is the first movie with that camera technique. He can point to that. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm not not to completely discredit him as to be the one that put something in a movie that probably was in movies previously, Cycle being one of them, which was a very popular movie. And then saying, yeah, I've, I've sort of done this in a way that wasn't viewed previously, although probably done previously. And so I just happened to intersect this point in time and this idea and, and kind of put these pieces together. And here we are. And so I don't know. I feel like maybe Bob has some level of confession to mm -hmm. that. The purity to this idea isn't originating just with me. There's lots of things that I just happen to, I'm just almost like a conduit of an idea or a concept that I probably was influenced by others by, and then put them in a movie somewhat coincidentally and somewhat maybe influenced by psycho or other influences. And then it was produced. So as much as I'd like to own this concept, I can only own maybe 10% of it, if that. And then for him to kind of talk about how he also invented Halloween, uh, you know, mm -hmm. he, he kind of, when he talks about it, he talks about it kind of both sides of his mouth where he's like, he's bringing it up as if he's, you know, owning, having some ownership to it, but then also says, I'm sure someone else would have come up with Halloween outside of me. And I'm sure others did. They just, you know, they didn't execute it or something like that. So I did, don't know. He, did he accuse the Halloween maker of Halloween uh, of stealing this idea, this filming technique? He made it seem that John Carpenter, who is the guy that directed Halloween, had somehow got part of the idea from him. Uh, you know, that's that's kind of how I interpreted Bob's explanation of, of of this concept of the sequel to Black Christmas. He's basically saying, I wrote or conceptualized Black Christmas 2. It was Halloween. And then someone kind of took this idea from me and made Halloween. And so I kind of own that too. And so not only is he owning Black Christmas as if it's this revolutionary subjective camera experience idea that him as an individual on his own, much like us on a snowy mountain of uh, rigid individualism, uh, conjured this uh, magically. And he's also laying claim to a movie that he wasn't even, you know, within the production stream of. So I don't know. I just, I think that him and I would include me or anyone else in this. It's sort of like, yeah, I had this idea. I was influenced by others. I, I, you know, it came to me when I was just kind of daydreaming and then I talked to others about it and they helped me formulate it. In fact, this is the camera guy who developed the, I don't know, straps and systems. And so, yeah, I can claim about 10% of this idea, maybe 5%. And that's basically it. And I feel like that as a more accurate landing than how others sort of perceive their, I don't know, I wouldn't say contributions, but ownership of 
idea and ownership of, yeah, I don't, even their own embodiment. And, it, you know, it's just, that's sort of my perspective on it. So what, um, what are the advantages of not claiming ownership and what are the disadvantages of claiming ownership? Like what, what are we gained? What are we going to gain by coming closer to your view of things? Uh, and what is lost by, um, the Bob Clarks of the world. If someone came to me and said, Hey, look, I'm a revolutionary idea guy. I came up with this whole framework and, and I own it. Then it would be like, wow, this guy's a genius. Like this guy is so individually unique and there's no ability for me to be as, as close to as, as magnificent as this individual. And so there's a, maybe an isolating quality to it and an othering, not an othering, but a, a sort of a better than you kind of quality to it. Just sort of exploring this in real time. I don't necessarily find this to be off-putting in general. I'm just sort of thinking about the benefits and, and drawbacks to this. If I instead approach it and say, yeah, you know, this is pretty good. I like what I've done. I'm proud of what I produced here. Uh, but, you know, I, you know, I was influenced, I was influenced by others. You know, this is, this is just a contribution, a small contribution amongst many uh, similar contributions. And, you know, it's unique because it's mine, but, you know, how unique and how is it and how much of it did I solely own as an individual and how much of it was just the production of many? Hmm. Yeah, I see the the egoism, the egotistical nature of that. But um, I think for his career, it makes sense to to be as aggressive in claiming priority over such innovations. Hmm. So the alternative would be that he sees himself as some kind of conduit of influences from other friends of his or other movies he's seen and so on and so forth. And, and artists that would acknowledge that sort of communal influence, I'm trying to think of how the consumers of the art would view them. I don't, I, th I think we do want to assign responsibility and credit to individuals. It's, it's too difficult for us to say that Bob Clark's work was just um, an overflow of, of archetypes that happen to be prevalent at the moment of its filming. Like we can, we can say those words, but it doesn't, uh, we, we seem to want an artist, uh, a creator for each work and to credit them with causing it. Mm. Um, so there's that kind of narrative element maybe that is challenging for at least our language, if not also our, uh, imaginations to encompass. Okay. Yeah. I could see where there's a, a preference to attach it to a biography because we're kind of human seeking humans we're, we're you know, sort of relationship seeking uh, organisms. And so if I attach it to a person, then I can conceptualize that easily. And maybe there's a sense of warmth and a sense of like uh, appreciation to that. I, and then I also think that it's helpful to label and objectify a concept. So if I think of this subjective first view camera angle and I think, oh yeah, Bob Clark made that. This is Bob, Bob Clarkian in the way that this is done, then I can just sort of say, oh yeah, you know how Bob Clark did it? I don't need to say, well, what happens is that you strap this thing to the front of you and then you walk around as if you're the murderer. And then this conveys a sense of dread and, and anonymity to who the actual person is. And then this, this drives a, a mechanic where you can run this all the way through the movie. And then at the end, there can be a reveal or not a reveal. And you see how this works out? 
that's obviously much more complex than just say, let's do what Bob Clark did. Yeah. So the name and, and the assigning of, of primacy is really just a verbal shortcut that we use to, to avoid saying all the things he said at first. Well, I think that that has uh, definitely has a, uh, a value to language and concept. And your other example of the, 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 the concrete undeniable fact that you are sexy as hell. Right. And, um, and yeah, so you are the, are the advantages and the disadvantages, the gains and losses of, um, selfing that, of making that part of your identity, uh, similar or different from the Bob Clark, uh, advantages and disadvantages. Like, what do you, what do you gain by incorporating your unbelievable good looks right yeah as you're doing or what do you what, what could you gain by more regularly viewing the fact that everyone wants to just lick your entire body from, right, yeah. from head to toe <laughs> um yeah as as not you're doing as just a a, a fluke of genetics and and uh, concurrence of social norms Right. So it might be something like, you know, I'm on the bus. This is pre-hike, of course. And everyone is looking at me. You know, there's, there's, a, the bus there's, driver. <laughs> there's, there's mouths agape and uh, just stunned looks, uh, you know, yeah. and, and, and then I turn there's and also I say, just like this glow coming from, <laughs> it's illuminating the whole bus. <laughs> and I turn and I say, this is shared beauty. It's not me. It's us. We, I, I just happen to be as, as, as dreamy as I am today, but I'm just representing just as many parts as, as you guys, you're, 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 you're just as beautiful in, in different ways. And, and I just happen to uh, be at the intersection here of uh, uh, just c consuming desirability. Um, and then I have to actually leave the bus because uh, it's just too distracting. <laughs> well, nobody, driver's not even driving and he's so taken with. Uh, so you say that to them and then what's what's your purpose there? Is that to, to assuage their sense of inferiority or to... Uh... <laughs> uh, I think that it's a, you know, I see this as a, to some degree, I see this as a point of accuracy where it's, I'm trying to be accurate and representative of the experience that's going on my beauty will fade i will you know no. uh, yeah at some point i won't look as good as this and and then down the road if i've purely associated myself with this and then when it when it goes away this this experience has now left me and i'm not uh you know uh this this level of golden beauty and so then i may shift how i self-identify or identify what i think is valuable about myself and the world has adjusted themselves automatically to to someone else so it's like there's a temporary piece here that's maybe part of the conversation but it's also if i disassociate myself from this gorgeousness i also am kind of couching my own ego in what's truly happening here. It's not that it's not that I was an ugly man and then I, I went into my bedroom and then mathematically figured out how to be beautiful through my own reason and, and uh, brilliance. And then I came out, you know, God's gift to the world. I just kind of inherited these qualities. And so they're, they're not as much as part of me as I would might think. And the attribution that's provided to me by the, the society maybe applying this to me. I am so attractive. 
well, no, I just happen to embody an attractiveness that is currently viewed as desirable under these conditions. Call me 30 years later and maybe I'll return your call at that point because, you know, there's so many calls coming in because so attractive. So you're, you're, you're basically saying that an advantage of disowning your beauty is that later in life when your beauty has faded slightly, mm-hmm. slightly faded, you, right. you, won't, you won't suffer a um, sort of confusion of who you are and feel, feel like you've lost something because you never identified with it in the first place. So yeah, if I if I disassociate myself from this attractiveness and know that it's a, a temporary situation in which there's a configuration in which I found myself, then it may not prevent it may it may prevent an ego collapse later in life when I've given so much credit and confidence to this thing that has now left me. Hmm. So so the, so it's more yeah so not claiming responsibility just just positions you closer to the true state of things and there's something inherently valuable about being in possession of that true state of things hmm. i don't know I, I feel like it i think it would have a an, an echoing effect in the present that would have a, a positive reward or at least uh, a positive benefit that i can't quite put my finger on i wonder how you would interact with others you know the the women and men that just throw their throw their loins at you mm-hmm and and what would it what would it sound like to verbalize this new framework this new self framework mm-hmm. you know um they, they might say john you're the most amazingly attractive person i've ever met and what, how would you respond to that in, under this new framework for example uh, yeah um well first i would say thank you of course um well, even by saying I, thank you you're well you know it's a socially polite thing to do because um, well, it's like you know, it's like someone going up to you and saying that this the weather is so beautiful today, John. It's uh, the sun is shining and it's eighty degrees. Um, you're just as unresponsible for that as you are for the for the uh, rays of beauty emanating from every inch of your of your body. So mm-hmm. it would it would be just as nonsensical to say uh to to say thank you if someone made the mistake of thanking you or of of commenting that the weather was your doing right no i i totally agree with that statement so yeah i'm i'm, I'm standing there in my swimming trunks cuz that's all i would be wearing mm-hmm. and I, I would say i also appreciate how beautiful i am <laughs> uh but you know i can't take responsibility you know uh, yeah. gl- and then just like glory be to god and then i just uh you know, just jump in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a... Okay, well... Uh, I yeah. mean, under, under those same conditions, I'm, uh, how, how might you operate? Well, I think you'd, you'd, you would just have to accept the fact that people confuse the, the, uh, the, the true causes of your, of your magnificence, you know, and, and they're, they're not, you're not going to be able to unconfuse them in the same way that it would be impossible for for you to unconfuse them about the true cause of the weather. You just have to accept the fact that mm. they're gonna they're gonna attribute these the doings to you, and um, you just so have you don't to, feel no enlightenment going on here. No, no. Well, I mean, no you could you could reattribution commit you know? your life to trying to reeducate everyone in the world um, about the true origin of beauty, but mm-hmm. at the same time, you might not be interested in doing that. Maybe you just wanna <laughs> you just wanna. Yeah, let people 
you know, there's nothing malignant about letting them live on in their ignorance. Um, nothing actively well, malignant. I, you know, and maybe maybe to kind of wrap this up in a, in, a, in another way of looking at it is that we're talking about a positive attribute that's attached to me that I celebrate. What if they attribute some negative attribute to me that I, I also have zero control over? Mm. I happen to be standing next to a deceased baby and mm. they're like, oh, wow, you killed this baby due to how attractive you are. And I so say, we, okay, go ahead. yeah, I'm like, I, I didn't, I just, this baby happened to die and I was near it. Mm. But my beauty did not create its death, uh, you know, kind of this witchery type consideration. Um, and so there's a slippery slope of just ignoring such misattributions and and claiming things that I had uh, no part of. And so, yeah, so I, I think that might be the the opposite end of this discussion. Yeah, that's that's true. I hadn't considered the negatives. Yeah, well, John, I'm I feel constant and and infinite compassion for your for the the confused state upon which the world gazes at you and um i for one will endeavor to more correctly attribute the attribute the causes of your of your greatness yeah no i appreciate that we can we can get the message out yeah um we're getting it out through the we're podcast getting it out. Yeah. we are yeah exactly um yeah and I mean, so uh yeah the, the greatness of this particular episode for example is not directly the cause of you or of me that's right? true yeah i mean that's true it's just yeah just the the right moment and the right podcasting equipment and it's christmas and maybe jesus is involved jesus is involved yeah mm-hmm. you know and these clouds that look like jesus <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, and so I'm just sort of waiting here for your uh, your your present. I thought you you got me something for, oh, for Christmas. Did you? Well, did you um, get me uh, I uh, it's the Lord's holiday and Christmas uh, have oh, presents. I I got oh. you the sleeping bag. Oh, that looks like your sleeping bag. No, it's a different one. Definitely different. Definitely. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. thank you. Now I have two well, sleeping yeah. bags. Yeah, I'll I'll uh, <laughs> I'll uh, well, you know, it's. It's the middle of winter, so maybe I can borrow one. But I, uh, I thought you know I, what you, you know like what it. I got you a cre- present too. Oh, it's the sleeping bag. Oh, yeah, oh, this looks yeah. like my old sleeping bag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty close should, to it. Should have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the gift it's it's a day of gift giving, and yeah. so now we've exchanged gifts, and uh, we feel good about ourselves. We do. 